0: Good afternoon, hello, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Dan Malthrop, I'm the chief executive here, I'm also a proud member, and it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker today. Peter Georgescu is chairman emeritus at Young and Rubicam and an author, most recently, of the book he's here to talk to us about today. That book is called Capitalists Arise! And in it, he calls on corporate titans to end economic inequality, to grow the middle class and to heal the nation. It's a modest call to action. Mr. Georgescu began sounding this call two years before the book was published in a widely read Sunday op-ed in the New York Times published in 2015. That op-ed began with a simple two-word sentence, I'm scared. The source of the fear that Mr. Georgescu says he shares with other highly successful capitalists is income inequality. Many City Club members and those of you who listen frequently to our forums and podcasts will not be surprised by the statistics that he cites that 40% of Americans are barely scraping by on an average of just $1,300 every month. This and similar statistics are connected to so many of the topics that we discuss here, and yet, what are we prepared to do about these brutal facts of our economy? Mr. Georgescu's personal story is a vitally important piece of context here, and he will share much of it, I'm sure, but you should know that Cleveland plays a pivotal role, one Clevelander in particular, actually. Congresswoman Frances Payne Bolton, the first woman to represent Ohio in Congress, who served from 1940 to 1967, is the single person who may have had the biggest impact on Mr. Drogescu's life. But enough introduction, he's eager to get on stage. Here he is, a member of the American Advertising Hall of Fame, a graduate of Princeton and Stanford, an immigrant who arrived in the US as a teenager who began his career young in Rubicam as an entry level trainee and retired as chairman, helping to grow it into a multinational creative marketing powerhouse. Friends capitalists, socialists. Please join me in welcoming Peter Georgescu.
1: Thank you, thank you very much, Dan. He's an extraordinary guy, Dan. I'm very very proud to be in this, one of my favorite cities in America. Very happy to see some very friendly faces in the audience. I'm glad to hear from uh, conscious capitalists. I'm absolutely thrilled that the Bolton family is here in force. And yes, Dan is right. I wouldn't be here, I don't mean speaking here, I wouldn't go on its earth if it wasn't for Francis Payne Bolton. Uh, you, uh, there's another book called uh, uh, The uh, con- <laughs> well, it's, uh, you know, one of my f- biographies, so to speak, and I talk a lot about the Bolton family and the story of how how I got to be where I am today with you. So I'm indebted to the Bolton family. There's extraordinary kinship that I have with these wonderful people. I also want to thank Stuart Cole, one of the fathers of this gathering here today, and to my dear friend, dearest friend, Joan Brown Campbell, long time dear friend of mine, and her husband, Penny. I'm delighted that you are all here. And so good afternoon to everybody in this room today friends and new friends-to-be. And also delighted that I see some students here, and I'm just very grateful that the youngest generation is here to get involved with the critical issues of our time because they're going to be part of the solution, the long-term solution of what can happen and will happen in this country. So I'm standing in front of you. I have a long story to tell you, so I have to sort of try to get much of it in play here before we get to have a dialogue with each other. But I'm standing in front of you here this afternoon as a capitalist. And I am a committed capitalist, but also the kind of a committed capitalist who's determined to convince his fellow brethren in business that we must address with wisdom and with urgency the single most critical, in fact, I would call it the existential challenge in America, which is income inequality, which leads with, to inequality of opportunity. And if we don't address this issue, nothing much else good is going to happen in this country. Now, why business? Why my concern about business? And as a capitalist, I understand the relationship between business and society a bit and some of the factors that drive it. Like for example, the simple reality that in this country only, only business can produce prosperity and growth. Only business can do that. Government can help, can foster, can support. can. incent and regulate business, but only business can do that. The second reason is simply one of clout. Business represents some $19 trillion to our economy every year, whereas the public sector, the government, about just under $5 trillion, and most of that is already committed to paying our extraordinary debt, the military, education, health care, and so forth. And yet most of us in this country look to governments and say, Fix the inequality problem, government, whereas I believe that we in business must really go out of our way to, to adapt inequality as our number one challenge, both short-term and long-term. And so that's what we in business must do. Now if we go back in time a couple of years to that 18 months or so slug during the 2016 election. We witnessed that both Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders gave voice to have much to less in our society. These are the folks who many of you know, most of you know, who are frustrated, who are depressed, who are concerned, who are even very angry that no institution in America is willing to listen long enough and hard enough to do something about it. And here we are, the reality, some two-and-a-half into a new administration. And nothing really has happened to alleviate the problem of the have much to less in America. But the one truth is that inequality in this country is getting wider and wider every single day. So, this presentation that I'm going to share with you is going to attempt to, number one, define the scope and size of this problem, second, to look at the culp of potential culpability, in fact, the reality of the culpability of business in helping create this problem, and lastly, to point to a path forward, a sort of a version of capitalism, as was mentioned, which can produce inclusive prosperity and growth for all Americans. So that's what I'm going to try to do. And the number one thing that we do, that we must do, is to preserve free enterprise (laughs) capitalism. And I say that because free enterprise capitalism has proven to be the most powerful force and generator of prosperity and growth that humankind ever created. And I'll defend that statement by saying that if you look at America, we are the number one military and economic force in the world because that's what free enterprise capitals did for us. Secondly, between the years 1945 and about the middle 1980s, Free enterprise capitalists built the largest economic market in the world, which was America's middle class. And then the principles of free enterprise capitalism have lifted literally hundreds of millions of people out of object poverty into a much more humane standard of living. All you have to do is think about India, China, (laughs) throughout Asia, all of the Americas, and of course, Europe and even beginning to work in Africa as well. So this is a powerful thing. And uh, I would want to talk a little bit about governance. governance. What do I mean by governance? The rules of the road on how business is conducted. What are the parameters of business? And this is the first 40 years. This is the era that I was talking about, this powerful era that really produced tremendous prosperity and growth for America. And what was that governance? What were the rules of the road? Well, very simple ones. The simple one was to optimize five critical stakeholders' interests, five critical stakeholder interests. They are the customer first. If you don't take care of the customers, we all know nothing much happens in business or anything else. Secondly, the employees who produce and deliver the goods to the customers. Then the stakeholder who brings the capital to the table, then you have the corporation that needs to the resources to re- be reimagined, to, to, be, to stay up to date, to stay relevant, because the world around you changes, the competition changes, the customer changes, so business needs resources to reimagine itself and so forth. And the last critical stakeholder, of course, is society. It's really the nation. And the communities in which we do business, meaning us all. And this is an important one, and there was an implicit understanding during this first 40 years, between 45 and 82, or middle 80s, and that is that society gave business two humongous advantages. It says, look, you have two advantages. We'll give you a favorable tax rate versus the individual tax rate, and we gave you limited liability. So you, as a Shareholder and investor don't have to worry about what happens to the peop- to the companies that you invest in, in return for which business promised to, in essence, behave like a good citizen in the community, do things like pay people fairly, create new jobs, and so forth. And America business bought this governance hook, line, and sinker, and it worked magnificently. In fact, I'm going to give you a report card. Now, here are the three demographic groups. The bottom 90 percent of America, the next 9 percent, and the top top 1 percent of America. And during this 40-years period, we saw that the bottom 90 percent grew up close to 80 percent, the next 9 percent grew about 100 percent, and the top 1 percent grew about uh, close to 30 percent. A-plus. Win, win, win for just about every segment in America, and that's what I said what I said about it. So this beautiful machine, and now I say free enterprise capitalism as risk, and that's one of the reasons I'm scared about it. because this beautiful machine is in trouble. And it's in trouble because it just hasn't been able to address this issue of inequality for the last several decades. Inequality is just going right out of hand. It's getting bigger and bigger. So before I get into reasons of what happened here, why this beautiful machine stopped working, I want to define the size of the problem. And I call it, this is the great American tragedy, I call it the zip code America, or the other America. I say zip code because it doesn't happen geographically north, south, east, west. It happens by zip code. So within three miles of almost anybody's home in this country, there's another zip code where you find these kinds of problems, and most of the zip codes. Most of us sort of walk around, drive around, fly over it, whatever it is, seldom do we really get immersed into the reality of the depth of the problems that exist here today. That's the zip code of America. Now I was faced with a problem when I first started to write the book, like how the heck do you define inequality? I think you all have the problem. Tell me what is an inequality, what is it? And so I was told then that if you make less than 30000 a year. You're in poverty, serious poverty, or even at the average of 54,000 a year. You have a tough time making ends meet, and if you even make $80,000 a year with a bunch of kids in school, you still have a problem. So I, I needed to find another answer, and I had a simple idea. I said, let's look of the insides of an American home, and particularly I wanted to focus on the kidding. You know, that metaphorical thing that most households have. You take all the income, you take the expenses, and you hope that there's something left at the end of the month. So I said, can we do that analysis? Yes was the answer. We took 126 million homes. We took all the income one sides of the ledger, like salaries and bonuses and equity returns, and at the lower end food stamps and unemployment insurance, and all the other transfer so-called transfer benefits, took away taxes and all the expenses. We took these 126 million home, divided them in ten equal parts, and I said, something may show up, and it did. And what showed up absolutely staggered me. It staggered me, and maybe will impress you as well. Because here's the data, close to 60 percent of American homes have to borrow money to put food on the table at the end of a month. Close to 60 percent of American homes have to do that, now, that's a travesty. At the other end of the scale, there's 20 percent of us, life's as good as it gets. And then I thought that the upper middle class, arithmetically sandwiched between this group of people who are really insolvent economically and up the upper 20 <coughs> percent where life is good, that these folks would be very robust. And this is your upper middle class, arithmetically. And at the end of a year, not a month, a year, they make $8,500 in the kitty. That's what's left over. So God forbid your roof leaks, your is in bad shape, or you get sick, or you get laid off, you're in serious trouble. And that's what Nobel Prize winning economist uh, Joe Stiglitz said, the f- famous $400 unplanned expense and most Americans can deal with it, uh, said Janet Yellen. Stiglitz said four out of five Americans will f- experience a form of formal poverty. And in New York City, there's a report last year that said most New Yorkers cannot live without a next month paycheck. All the same thing. Close to 70, 80 percent of Americans are in deep, deep trouble. That's reality. OK. That by itself is a serious issue. So now let's look very briefly, and I can't tell you the full story here, about the consequences of this. And it's horrific socioeconomic problems here. It starts with education. And education in America, despite many great public schools, private schools, et cetera, on balance, we ranked at the bottom of the developed world on education. And that's horrific. Because in most of these zip codes, the problem is that real estate taxes pay for education. There's no money there. So no money means poorly paid teachers, a dilapidated plant to the school. There's no plant. There's no, there's no money for after-class school programs or arts in the schools. There's no early education for these kids. You no hardly even kindergartens. So at age of three, all of many of our children and grandchildren go to school for cognitive development from age of three. None of these exist in these other zip codes, so to speak, with very few exceptions. So basically, what we have is We've achieved the complete segregation of schooling, of education, by income. And then the combination of bad education and low income has went it's eating at the heart of the American family and the values there, and that's very troubling. Divorce rates are very high, single-parent homes are too many, and among the single-parent homes, you have a single mom with a couple jobs to put food on the table, and you imagine the conversation that goes on at home, you know, the conversation you need to have. The teaching moments, how did you go to school today? How was it with the bully that was giving you trouble in the schoolyard and so forth? Mm-hmm. Or values or teaching moments of any kind about your peers, the teachers and so forth, or the citizenship. What's it mean to be a citizen? Are we citizens with some responsibility or are we squatters in this country? What those conversations like? Well, in too many cases, those conversations never take place, because mommy's busy. She's got to work to put food on the table. So the kids don't have the kind of support that they need and must have as children to grow up, and that is really seriously bad news. But there's social media, the gangs, the drugs, the alcohol haunts, and they face a lot of unemployment if they don't finish high school. And that is a must, of course. And even though many people who do work are frustrated and humiliated in a way because they, they can't bring home a decent amount of money to satisfy their families in full. So we are creating a grossly undereducated citizen in this country, which is horrible for our democracy, which is complicated, as we know. And also, there's lots of loss of hope that things will really get better. And the opiate epidemic that knows no demographic boundaries is different here because these people are running away from the depressive life that they lead. It's not about getting high. And to give you a factoid, if you take the top 1 percent of America and contrast that with the bottom 1 percent of America in terms of longevity on Earth, the difference is 15 years. This is not America and Africa. This is the two Americas, and it gets worse. Wage increases uh, have been for 40 years about inflation rates, they're not going up. The total consumer debt is the highest, higher even than it was in 07-08. The education debt, 100 percent borne by this segment, is $1.5 trillion. And this is the staggering number here that really scares me to death. Next year, 50 percent of all Americans' workers, are going to be contingent workers. Contingent meaning that they're contract workers. Specifically it means about 18 percent less wages, job for job, and of course no benefits. And healthcare costs are going out of sight between 20 and 40 percent, and about 10 million people last year lost their health insurance completely. So problems, middle class is pretty much gone, upper middle class barely hanging on. We have an India-style caste system. It's very hard to get out of from there without the kind of support that is needed. And everybody says, well, we're spending too much money on entitlements and this and that, and we don't question. Why do we need entitlements? (laughs) What the heck's the problem? We don't talk about that. We just debate how much or how little can we get away with it. So we've created grossly unequal opportunity, and that's the problem. The issue, we'll never have equality of income. That's not right. We're all different. We work harder, smarter, whatever. But when equality of opportunity, of being the best you can be, and this is what I have lived, this is why I'm talking about it, I have lived the American dream. I can look in the mirror and say, I'm the best Peter Georgescu I can be. And only in America could that have happened in my lifetime. Only in America. Now granted, I was a white immigrant who came to America, didn't speak a word of English, didn't go to school for four years. But there was a culture here for people like immigrants like me to be supported and encouraged and mentored, and we need to have that happen for all children, regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of anything. That's who we are as a country. That's what made America great in my opinion. Historians have said very simply, this problem existed before. It's always solved. How? You either redistribute wealth through abusive taxation, or you redistribute poverty. I've experienced the latter, it's very ugly, you don't want to go there. And that can happen through either really aggressive, uh, uh, if you will, the kind of uh, social unrest in the streets, or through the ballot box. But those-when those things happen, not wise decisions are made, and that's why I'm concerned. And I don't want either one of those to happen. I want business to step up against before we get to resolve it in a very unfortunate way. Business has the capacity to change things. Government is in paralysis, so we can do something. We can do something dramatic if we change what is going on today. And I will also tell you one other problem, little problem, is that the numbers that we get from the government today like GDP growth and unemployment and uh, the stock market, those have nothing to do with 80 percent of America. They represent how we, the 20 percent, are doing, and we're doing great, and the numbers are right, they just measure, don't measure the other America at all. So we have no, generally speaking, we have no idea what's really going on, and that's unfortunate. So what's the contemporary version, what's the governance that has created this problem? And it's very different. Because the five stakeholders that were optimized before disappeared in the mid-'80s. And they went to maximizing one, just one, the shareholder. And that was the new governance of the last 40 years of American version of capitalism. And this is concerning. And the new mantra of this version, in essence, that version of capitalism got hijacked. Now we have the shareholder. And the mantra is very simple, maximize short-term shareholder value, which means short-term, the problem is short-term and maximization of the shareholder. That doesn't work. And you do it. And by the way, free enterprise capitalism is still working. It's been asked to do different things. It's been asking to say, be very profitable, and even in a very depressed global economy, <laughs> we now have the highest profits, corporate profits in the history, recorded history. How you do that? Well, if you look at 45 from 1945 to about middle 1980s, there were two lines, productivity increases and wage increases. One line, they're sitting right on top of each other. You couldn't tell there were two lines. From mid-80s uh, mid on, wages flatline. For 40 years, flatline. Productivity goes up, innovation goes up, profits turbocharge exponentially. That's one way to do it. The other way you do it? is you decrease your level of investment in your own companies. You have an almost a 45 percent slope, negative slope going down in investment in your own companies. The same with basic research. And if you look at our competition of the future, China invests 10x what we invest in R&D. Korea invests about 6x versus us. Germany and Japan about 2X, and we're down there with the Brits. Okay, there's more There's more problems. We take 90, we shareholders take 90 cents out of every operating dollar. And through new devices, very tax-efficient things, we take. This is a study of the, the um, S&P 500 companies, and from in a 10-year period, or six to to uh, 5 to 16, or 6 to 15, I should say, they took about 54 percent of operating profits to the shareholders through buybacks, and that's about $4 trillion sent to the shareholders that increase wealth dramatically and no increase in value, zero. Part of the problem. And lots of other places. By the way, uh, stock buybacks were illegal way back when because your market manipulation. That's that change in, again, 82, 83. So we had problems. The dividends are the highest in recorded history as well. So what's the justification for this? The shareholders the company. They can, the owners can do anything they want, as they should. They're owners, right? And they can get profits every quarter because they're the owners. But if you look a little carefully, you say, do the shareholders really act like owners? They come into an equity when they want, they leave when they want. Are they owners or renters or what? There's no law, not one, in America that says that the shareholder owns the corporation. The shareholder has rights, and they abuse them today, but so do the other stakeholders have rights. So this is a myth that the shareholder owns the corporation. Okay. So the last part of the story is to say, yeah, the police of shareholder act, uh, the current shareholder primacy is really threatening CEOs. They're not having an easy time. And there are threats by hedge fund activists that if they don't maximize short-term shareholder value, they come over, they take over, they take out the cash, they fire a bunch of people, they fire the CO2. And and then they flipped the company and so forth. It's really bad all, all the way around. And we saw the highest buybacks in history happen in 2018, over a trillion dollars of happening. And here's the report card. The bottom 90 percent that used to grow about 80 percent is now a negative 3 percent in this last close to 40, 40 years. And the next 9 percent uh, grew up about 50 percent. And the top 1% went from about 30% to 176%. So that was this version of free enterprise capitalist. So the path forward is very simple. We've got to move away from one uh, stakeholder, the shareholder, to, again, the common good that business and government must focus on, prosperity for all Americans. Which means we must go back to some version of having the employees at the table to having the society at the table, to have the business, the corporation itself at the table, because this can be a win-win, as I'm going to mention to you. And the starting point is the employee. We must change the relationship between corporate America and employees. It used to be very close. And in today's world, in the 21st century, the secret sauce is clear. Improve productivity and improve innovation. Who does that? Not the CEO, not the shareholders, the employees do that. Who cared? And yet today we have the most disconnected, disconnected relationship between employees and the corporation. The corporation corporation looks at the employees on average as a cost, and that's got to change. These are the people whose merits need to be recognized, they need to be rewarded, they need to be incented to help the corporation grow, to add value to the corporation. And that's the version of free enterprise capitalism. And I'm not talking about just throwing money at the employees. No, you have to earn it. That's the sustainable way. And therefore, they have to share in the incremental value of what they produce. That's the right way for the future. You can sustain that. We produce growth, we better share on it. And that's the way it really uh, should work. And minimum wage is important at the lower end of the scale. You've got to have a living wage. It is absolutely ridiculous and when people say, well, gee, if you, if you really increase the minimum wage, you put you, the company is going to be, go belly up. And I say, let it go belly up. What are we going to do, put kids into, into, into jobs because child labor is cheaper than these other guys? It doesn't work that way. So we have to have a reasonable thing about how we make our profits and, we, and be honest and fair and just to all society. Now the good news is this, and this is a good news and a little bit of a tragedy. The good news is that the most successful companies in today's America violate the shareholder primacy. Loop. And I'll give you one example. My favorite one is Costco. They're in the retail business, the toughest, smallest margin you can imagine. And Jim Senegal, who's the founder of Costco, went out, hired a bunch of Walmart employees at that time in 1983 is the year, and he said, we're going to double your salaries. All we want you to do is to love your customers more and love your supply, my suppliers. And since 1983, they compounded over 16 ni- percent uh, per year every year. And you know, Home Depot did a lot of the same thing. And today, Delta Airline is, as a traveler, I can tell you anecdotally, but I think research also supports it, Delta Airline is the favorite airline of America. One of the major reasons, they have something called profit-sharing. I interviewed, I was flying from Phoenix to New York with Barbara, and people said, and I talked to the flight attendants, and they said, I love my company. He so said, what the hell do you love, your company? He said, I've been getting bonuses for four straight years. I love it, man. I have a better life. for so my family. So that's the kind of thing that has to happen. And all the five or six or seven greatest companies in the world today, who are they? The tech companies, right? Google, Apple, Microsoft, whatever. And they pay their people through their nose. I mean, they pay people. You know from your kids, you talk to your kids. And everybody wants to work for Google or Microsoft or something because big money there. And they invest long-term, not short-term, they invest long-term, they invest in research, and that's how they got to be where they are. Now, I don't give them a pass because they pay their people well, but when they come to the contract workers, they squeeze them, inexcusable. But on balance, here's the, the good news is that this thing works. You do the right thing, it works. And I'm going to jump right to a relationship between government and business. Government needs to play a different role. Government and business must help fix education. We must have the best educated workers, the best educated citizenry in the world. That's how we compete with China, not necessarily terrorists. Have the best educated people, be most creative, most innovative company, and spend my money to get there. We need trade schools literally dozens of millions of jobs go unfilled because we don't have the people for those jobs so we got to be humble and see other societies are doing this successfully so we can learn from other countries and we must train when we we don't we shouldn't just fire people we got to train and retrain people and that's a job for business and government together and government must also <coughs> invest in future businesses that single companies cannot make big investments like healthcare, that decoded the DNA. And then now we have millions of jobs, high-paying jobs north of $100,000 a year because private industry could monetize the research that came from the government, as did the Internet that was developed by government. And as when we put a man in the move, industry, dozens of industries have been created. Infrastructures needs to be fixed. AI, artificial intelligence and so forth, they're all said to be held by the collaboration between government and business. The basic principle that we got to go to is when business wins, society must win also. You cannot have one win and one lose. That is not sustainable. And that's why I was scared. I want this to be a successful thing for all our kids. We owe that to future generations. And the reason that business growth must exist is to have better solutions for society. That's the fundamental win. And then you do that, and everybody, and everybody wins, as we did before. And the ultimate goal is equality of opportunity. That's the American dream. So every kid can look themselves in the mirror, as I did, and say, you know what, I'm the best me that I can be, and if we do that, business acts now with and acts with urgency, and government and business can collaborate together for a more just, more fair, productive society. And in business, if we stand for some strong moral values as well as smart business, then democracy gets strengthened and the best days are ahead of us. That's my story. Now I want to hear from you.
0: Today, we're hearing from Peter Georgescu, author of Capitalists Arise, and Chairman Emeritus at Young and Rubicam. I'm Dan Malthrop with the City Club, and we're about to begin the Q&A. Holding our microphones today, our content coordinator, Bliss Davis, and City Club intern, Sophia Brewer-Thompson. May we have our first question, please? Yes, sir. Um, immigrant businessmen like yourself have really given a lot. From that standpoint, are you in favor of revitalizing the H-1B uh, visa process, so young college <coughs> students who are international would have a better chance of staying here and sharing what they've learned with all of us?
1: Absolutely. That's an easy one. <laughs> you look at our history in technology, from Einstein to everybody else who created the magic. Look, we're a nation of immigrants. I happen to be the of the boat variety immigrant. But all of us are immigrants at one point or another in our lifetime. That's what the vitality of this country depends on that fresh thinking of saying, gee, I didn't know you couldn't do that, so let's try to do it, so we go and do it. So I think immigrants are a very important part of our future. We do have to have secure border, of course. We must make sure that the criminal elements don't get in here. But then we have to be a welcoming country for new ideas and energy and vitality. Many of the right immigrants that come to this country want to work harder. You scratch an immigrant and you'll know, you'll see ambition and you'll see drive. And so the answer is yes. And what the tragedy is that a lot of foreign students still come, but they now go back to China because that's a better place. That is a ridiculous thing for us to happen. We educate them and they come around and they will compete with us and eat our lunch. Not a smart thing to do. Other questions?
0: What do you say to all the people who feel like the lower income people just aren't working hard or they're just just lazy? I I did it myself. They should do it themselves.
1: Uh, Gee, I I think I've heard that argument before. (laughs) It's silly nonsense. It's silly nonsense. Unemployment in this country is not 3.7 percent. That is ridiculous. You know what it is? Have you looked for a job in the last six months actively? That's what that number is. If you look at labor participation, which means, Of all those people who are of working age, what's the percentage of people who are not working? That's real unemployment. And we are now, if you look at the next close to 60, 70 years, we're close to the record level of less participation, which is about somewhere between 14 and 16 percent. That's a real number in this country. Yeah, People give up. I mean, how many, and, and you know, you must know a lot of kids, even kids, college graduates kids that sends out dozens, if not 100 plus uh, applications for jobs, you can't find jobs. And these people have a high school education, no education, and they have a very tough time finding jobs. They don't have the education to get the, the five or six million cyber jobs that are high paying jobs. We don't have the kids there. In South Florida, which occasionally we visit from time to time, we do have a house there, for full disclosure, but we don't live there, we're New Yorkers. And, and you, you know, the builders have a tough time. They don't have the welders, they don't have the electricians, they don't have the carpenters, et cetera, high-paying jobs. So we got to fix that. So the answer, these are not lazy people, they're desperate people. And that's what the opioid crisis is about. And the kids, you know, you can explain, not excuse, that they're gangs and this. There's just nothing else. There's no infrastructure support system for these kids. And that's what we have to fix. We also have to really work hard to reinvent the American family where values really matter. That's how society of the future has to be built on. And stop looking and trying to find excuses for the reasons doesn't work so, it means that I can keep everything I have and everything that is going on today is right, because it isn't so.
0: Thank you. That was a great talk. My question for you is, Henry Ford said, I want to build a car and pay my employees enough that they can afford to buy the car. Now with the app economy and that uh, and the uh, Ubers and others where people are not getting pensions, unemployment or uh, Social Security, any kind of things. How do you change that whole dynamic of that?
1: Well, look, at the end of the day, that's what I said. The starting point for business is to reinvent the relationship between the employees and the corporation. You have to see them. The true value creators Mm -hmm. are not the people who bring capital to the table. That used to be the case. If you had money, you build factories, you build distribution system. You fed people like me in the advertising, communication business a lot of money. Only money could do that. Today, go to the bank with a bushel full of money and ask him, what will you do for me? How much return do I get for my cash? And you know the answer to that. So the secret sauce is not that; is what people can build. And we ask technology today simply to fire people. Find a way to replace people with machines. Instead of saying, let's use technology to help people create greater value. So we got it all backwards here. So there's a mindset change that has to happen in America. So I've got to tell you, the journey is not easy. And here's my conundrum of, really conundrum of fear to answer your question. We know what we need to do. And the people, as I said before, many corporations are doing that already. So we have proof this works. But, by gosh, change is hard to let go of what you have or what you think you know. And a lot of people are making a ton of money from the system the way it is. And the fact is that we don't fully appreciate the data that I showed you is not common knowledge. So we got to face reality in America and then say let's deal with a problem instead of trying to fake around and do a heck fake or or, or some others, let's pretend that the problem is this or that and it's not the real problem. We have to have all the right stakeholders at the table. And business can interpret that, business can do that, business is doing that in many cases. There is conscious capitalism around. There are wise people who say, oh, I know how to do it, the heck with it. I, one little anecdote. I remember about five years ago, Google gave um, $10,000 raise for um, all, to all employees. They decide that's why we want to do it, because that's uh, their version of sharing in the value that these, their employees created. I was on the phone with a bunch of guys that happened to be in the office of some investors, and I was listening to Larry Payne. He was He was CEO for like nine months or a year then. And the analysts on the telephone were giving him a hardest time saying, you Your revenue went up like crazy, your profits barely inked up a few percentage points. You had the disaster quarter. And he said, you know, guys, I had a great quarter, I have a great company, and we're doing wonderfully well, and hang up the phone. Now that takes cojones, that takes guts. Now he had a very successful company make a ton of money to do that, but the principle is right. And that's what we have to do.
0: Good afternoon. Uh, Last week, the newly elected mayor of Denver declared
1: that capitalism was on its last leg, and she was gonna do everything she could to usher in. Uh, She used the term community and communism Uh interchangeably. We've got about um,
0: at least four uh, people running for, uh, president of the United States that make no bones about the fact that they're socialists. Where do you think we're headed in this country? And what's that going to do to capitalism?
1: Well, thank you. At dinner last night, I, I, I was hoping you would raise the question. I'm just kidding. I've never <laughs> met a gentleman.
0: <laughs>
1: and thank you, Dan, very much. I, I didn't say that to you uh, and to, the, to this wonderful club for having this kind of conversation. I'm very grateful. Look. I know socialism, communism is a version of socialism, that's what it was. You own the means of production. It doesn't work, it doesn't work, that's what I'm saying. I'm scared because we're gonna kill the golden goose, which is free enterprise capitalism. That's what we have to preserve, that's where I started. Thank you for the question. It's, this is not a matter of ideology, good, bad ideology. It's simply stupid ideology, it's been tried, it doesn't work. And the Nordic countries don't practice socialism. They are capitalists. They have a strong social underpinning support system for those who don't participate. That's different. <coughs> to say that socialism is the answer is ridiculous, mm-hmm. but it's also scary. You see, part of the problem when if you, if you, this is no one's stuff. I know that. I mean, the story is not a simple story. But if you really understand it, you know, that capitalism right now is the only thing that really can produce growth and prosperity. If we throw that away, it's silly, it's wrong. And many people, the the populism around the world is really a reaction by folks who have too much and then the people on the right there say, aha, this is my opportunity to, to take over and do bad stuff. And we have to find our answers, the American answer. And socialism is not one of them. And we have to change. And this is why I'm urging business people to say, let's wake up, capitalists arise. I have made nothing else right about the book, but I got the right title. <laughs> wake up, guys. It's time to act. And we need to begin to change this issue. So thank you for the question. The, the answer is categorically simple. That other system doesn't work. And, and for, for them and the, the mayor in, in Colorado, it's got it all wrong. But change has to happen. One or the other, it's going to happen. It is going to happen. I promise you, it's going to happen. I just wanted to have the wise, wise way to create prosperity that all of us can enjoy in this country. Uh huh. So Here comes a toughie. So yes. Am I ready? You mentioned earlier how there was a decreasing, I guess, relationship between corporate America and their employees. Why do you think that is? I think. I think it was, you know, it's it's one of those things like the frog that was started to be boiled, starts with lukewarm water and then you increase the heat and before you know it that the, the frog is boiled. What happened is I don't think people went out of the way to say we're really going to exploit, that we're really going to exploit the, the, the employees. That's not how it started. They said let's, let's maximize, let, things were going great, now we don't have to. Let's let's pay the people a little bit less money, and a little bit less money. Before you know it, people became a cost. And if you want to maximize that profitability, you try to squeeze the biggest cost on on, on the on the books for a corporation are people cost. So you say, for, if I want to really maximize the employee part of it, I'm going to minimize what I pay my employees. So slowly over time, that's what happened. And. Call it greed, if you will, or call it whatever. But that was the mission that this governance, and that's important stuff. The governance of business is critical. When they said, you, CEO, better deliver next quarter more money than you did last quarter. So these guys are saying, oh, okay, if that's my mission, that's my job. And by the way, society is paying these people a ton of money. I didn't say that before. It's indecent. It's immoral. But it's also not the, that's not the problem. The problem is that the governance is wrong, the system is wrong, and we've got to fix the system. Because the system cannot allow the employees to be totally ignored and diminished in the process.
0: Hi, thank you so much for your talk. So I wanted to ask you about what you see as the role of government in facilitating or cultivating conscious entrepreneurship. And I ask this because I'm a social entrepreneur who works with other social entrepreneurs, and we are the people at the front lines of this trying to do business the way it was supposed to be done, I mean, with those five tenants. But there's, there's no capital. Um, I've seen business after business go down just because there is no capital to get over those scaling humps. And if I, there isn't much VC money available to most people, but if I go in there and I say, yeah, I have five bottom lines, good luck to me. And so I don't see any other way besides government to force the private market to do something different. So am I right, wrong, like, do you agree or disagree?
1: Well, you're not being myopic. You're absolutely right. And the reason you're right is because, again, the financial community says, I don't make much money. In fact, there's some risk that giving you money. I don't even have to have the money to a business. I can make money through arbitrage. I can make money through derivatives. I can make Create value, excuse me, I can create wealth without creating value in society. So you just simply create value. Who cares about you? Huh? That's not, that's not the way the, the game is supposed to pay. But that's the reality of what happens when you push this to an extreme. And that's what we're doing now. We're pushing the notion that you, you, you that the only thing that matters is the creation of wealth and not about value. And that's why I say to the young man's question, you have to change the system. The governance aspect is the critical issue here. And when you do that, then we-and you can do that many ways. You know, banks all of a sudden have been taken over by investment banking institutions, by and large. We have many people here-I'm looking at Stewart and others-who invest in real businesses. That's what they do for a living. They do give money to entrepreneurs. But in general, there's not enough of that. And so we have to change the system. Because if, if, if simple-it's it's not good enough to say it's just greed, it's the system that drives that. And if we don't fix the system, we can debate until the cows come home what you should do. And the government, yeah, they could dictate that. And by the way, the problem is not that a wise government can do that, but wise governments are very rare. And when government comes in and tries dictating to business what you should do and how do you make money, it doesn't work either. That's been tried before, too. So that's why the best answer is to change the system, to do it as you said before, to do it the way it should be run. That's what has to happen. Yes.
0: Well, I guess that's a perfect tie into my question, which is, so in practical terms, how do you fix corporate governance and whose responsibility is it? Is it the members of the board of directors who, if I look at your data, they're probably in that 1%, so they've made 176% benefit over the past decade. Is it the bankers? Is it the Wall Street analysts? So what are some practical concrete steps that we could take to try to fix corporate governance?
1: I don't like to answer that question. It's too hard. <laughs> um, the, answer, the answer is uh, all of the above to some degree or another. If it wasn't for an issue of time, if we had enough more time, it would be easier to fix. But I think we're getting a point here that the problem is so severe that it's likely to explode in our faces before we have the chance to, to do it the normal way, bottoms up, So I think we have the combination of going bottoms up and also top down. So I think the likely thing is that all the boards of directors, in fact, Ken Langone, a very established capitalism, about as conservative guy as you can ever imagine, and I went to a a conference of directors uh, that was sponsored for the Financial Times. And they listened to our story, basically this kind of story. And they cheered us. They gave us a standing ovation and said, I want you guys to keep talking about this. And what I was anxious to say I didn't, I said, why do we need to talk about it? How about you talking about this? <laughs> but you know, again, change is hard by anybody. And actually, the boards of directors have a hard time dictating to the CEO. Because if you dictate to the CEO what he should do or she do, and they don't do it, it's your problem. No, I don't want to be put in that position. So the real people who have to lead the change are the CEOs. Today's CEOs, not yesterday's husbands like me, but today's CEOs who are in the in the plow with responsibility for today, they have got to change. And institutions, like uh, gatherings of CEOs and others, have to take a step in the right direction. I'm working on that as well. It's it's hard going, and we. We are working against the clock. That's the tough part. Okay, thank you very much. Excellent job. Thank you.
0: Today at the City Club, we've been hearing from Peter Georgescu about his vision for the good that capitalism can create if properly put to work. That vision is spelled out in his book, Capitalists Arise. Our forum today is the annual Bolton Memorial Forum on National Politics, made possible by a generous gift to our endowment from the Bolton family. We're delighted to have Charles Bolton and his family and friends with us here today, uh, a legion of them. Thank you very much uh, for your support of the City Club. Our forum today is also sponsored by the Riverside Company. We're pleased to have Stuart Cole and his colleagues with us as well. Thank you very much, sir, for your support of City Club programming. And our forum is also sponsored by all of you as part of our Authors in Conversation series. It is supported in part by residents of Cuyahoga County through a public grant from Cuyahoga Arts and Culture. We're grateful to all of you for your support through that public grant. Our community partners for our forum today include Conscious Capitalism Northeastern Ohio and Global Cleveland. Our hospitality partners, the Metropolitan at the Nine Hotel. We're grateful for the partnership of those organizations. Additionally, we welcome guests at tables hosted by Charles Bolton and students from Shaker Heights High School. Support for student participation City Club forums comes from Key Bank and the William M. Weiss Foundation with additional support from donors you'll find listed in our program today. We thank all of you for being here. The sale of Mr. Georgescu's book, Capitalists Arise, is provided by a cultural exchange. That brings us to the end of our program today. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends, capitalists, socialists, all of you, thank you so much for being a part of it. Our forum is adjourned. For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org.